As the dust settled from the fighting that took place during the revolution and the government was finally established, the new challenge of governing was now at hand. This challenge was only made more difficult with the nation being divided on exactly how the government should operate. This split would create high political tensions among the supporters of the Federalists and the newly formed party of the Republicans, applying great stress to the already fragile Union. Additionally, there were major issues that arose shortly after independence was attained, such as how the nation's spread further west would unfold, how best to handle continued issues connected to slavery, as well as global conflicts that would greatly affect American politics, especially in the election of 1800. All this and more will be discussed in this week's podcast episode entitled Partisans. After President Washington was sworn in on April 30th, 1789, he was sent on a tour of the country to bolster support for the new government. He rode through towns in a lavish horse-drawn cart that was intentionally made to look regal by the Federalists. They did this because it was, one, the only way they knew how, but also because they intended to follow in the footsteps of Britain in creating a powerful centralized government. They treated Washington as if he was royalty, even going as far as to call him His Highness the President of the United States, the protector of their liberties. Understandably, this rubbed many people wrong due to its resemblance to what they had just fought to separate themselves from during the Revolution. Along with this questionable regal presentation of the new Republican government, the issue of slavery was already increasing tensions. Shortly after the approval by Congress of the masterfully written Bill of Rights in 1789 by James Madison, a petition was set before Congress by Pennsylvania abolitionist Quakers who sought to bring an end to the overseas slave trade. As one might expect, this enraged Southern representatives due to its perception as a threat to their slave-based economy in the South. However, this ban did not pass Congress, and instead a new Fugitive Slave Act of 1793 was passed that allowed slave owners to hunt down runaways in any state of the Union. In response, free blacks in 1799 worked to get this bill repealed due to the sinister implications of slave owners and their agents crossing into states with large numbers of free blacks. Unfortunately, the House refused to receive their petition with a vote of 84 to 1, rejecting the petition for free blacks to claim equal citizenship. One Georgia congressman made his reasoning for voting against it abundantly clear by stating, We the peoples does not mean them. Aside from the tensions raised by slavery, the new government continued to build up its strength by establishing the executive departments of state, war, treasury, and justice to assist the president in running the nation. During this executive buildup, a man by the name of Alexander Hamilton made his presence known by taking on the issue of the national debt. At the end of the war, the federal government had a debt of $51 million, which Hamilton planned to chip away at through the use of annual interest payments of $5 million. He planned to pay for all of this through the use of federal customs duties, excise taxes, and the sale of western lands. Hamilton even tried to take on state debts, which would have pushed the grand total to $76 million, but the House rejected this assumption of state debts, which sparked talks of secession from New Englanders. In an attempt to defuse these tensions, Thomas Jefferson held a dinner party to bring together Hamilton and Madison to broker a compromise. The compromise had planned that the capital would move further south to the banks of the Potomac to round up southern votes for Hamilton's program, 
but in the meantime, it would be temporarily moved to Philadelphia. This made slave states upset due to Pennsylvania's laws about slaves being set free after six months in the state. In the end, the capital was moved to its spot along the Potomac to what is now known as Washington, D.C. This move relieved the worries of Southerners due to the capital being closer to the South and surrounded by two slave states. With the issues of slavery and state now aside, there was also at this time much frustration by settlers due to the overregulation of land sales by the Federalists in the West. The Northwest Territory was the main zone of westward expansion in the late 1700s and early 1800s. Federalist land sale policy were constructed to work in the favor of land speculators and made it harder for normal settlers to colonize the frontier. The Federalist policy set minimum land purchase size at 640 acres at a minimum of $2 per acre. Additionally, Congress made it so only half of the territory would be sold in the 640-acre increment. The rest would be wholesaled at 5,760-acre parcels, further exacerbating settlers' irritation with the paternalism of the Federalists. Additionally, there was also the very real threat of conflict with natives in the territory. In the earliest days of the nation, the British and Spanish still held forts along the southern shores of the Great Lakes, which they used as trading posts to provide guns, ammunition, and advice to natives pushing back on American expansion, creating even more problems for settlers. The fighting became such a problem that Western warfare cost nearly five-sixths of all federal expenditures. Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, aimed to negotiate with the Indian Confederacy and the territory by defining a boundary line to separate settlers and natives. This diplomatic effort was ultimately rejected by the Indian Confederation, which promoted Washington to send an invasion force into Indian lands in August of 1794. This invasion resulted in, in the defeat of the Confederation. That same year, the Jay Treaty was signed, which surrendered the British forts on the shores of the Great Lakes to the Americans. This, along with treaties of Greenville, and the Treaty of San Lorenzo, both in 1795, gave America claims to territory along the Pacific, as well as considerable ground in the immediate western lands. By 1800, around half a million Americans lived west of the Appalachians. How, though, did all of these events affect American political opinions? During the late 1790s, much of the nation's success was attributed to the Federalist policies and programs, the Federalists brought the country out of the Depression of the 1780s, and in the 90s, the nation saw higher wages for merchants and skilled artisans, as well as better prices for wheat, which greatly benefited farmers. However, despite all of these economic successes, many Americans saw the Federalist agenda as a betrayal of the revolution due to their strict adherence to the British model of society and government. This disdain for the Federalists led Madison and Jefferson to create an opposition group named the Republicans. The election of 1792 was the first time the Federalists and Republicans went head-to-head. -head. The idea closely held by Federalists that only men of superior education, wealth, and status should be elected officials made many common men side with the Republicans. One Federalist claimed that there must be rulers and subjects, masters and servants, rich and poor, which only further proved the Federalists' continued attachment to the model of the British. In short, Federalists wanted a stronger, consolidated national government, while the Republicans favored a decentralized, consensual union in which most power remained with the states. This clashing of political ideals led many to resort to violence in the streets against their political opponents. 
One South Carolinian stated that three-fourths of the duels which have been fought in the United States were produced by political disputes. Needless to say, things were heating up. So much so that in 1794, 500 armed regulators in Washington County, Pennsylvania, marched on the home of John Neville, who was the leading tax collector in the area, demanding his resignation due to his adherence to the tax policy of the Federalists. Shots were fired between the regulators and Neville's hired guards. The regulators counterattacked and Neville fled. However, the armed rebellion to the Federalist policies was not met with praise from the capital. In response, Washington sent 15,000 state militiamen to western Pennsylvania to subdue the regulators. In the second half of Taylor Chapter 11 Partisans, there are four main um, sections that I'll quickly discuss. There are revolutions, election, empire of liberty, and principles. So, uh, the main things I took from revolution section is kind of how uh, the Amer uh, how America kind of stood on the sidelines for most of the uh, uh, kind of international conflicts that were going on around the world. Uh, from the late 1780s to early 1800s. And so America was, you know, struggling economically, weak and divided, so they didn't really want to get involved in any of the wars. But they kind of, they kind of cheered on um, the French, the French Revolution anyway, because they kind of, uh, kind of took the uh, American values of, of a republic. And, uh, and uh, so America kind of cheered for, you know, well, taking away monarchy and kings and, and uh, establishing republics throughout the world. Um, and during kind of the British and French War, they both, uh, both countries kind of asked for American aid in the war, but wisely George Washington opted for neutrality uh, because the country was deeply in debt and just politically divided, so he didn't want to get involved in a war. Another big thing that kind of happened in this uh, small section of revolutions was the slave revolts that were going on, mostly in the Caribbean, but also in different parts of the world. Uh, the main one being St. Dominique Slave Revolt in 1791. This revolt was very successful, and the French were really upset at losing this lucrative island. So they sent 6,000 troops um, led by um, Commissioner Santanox. In 1791, to kind of restore order to the uh, island. Uh, so, with so many white colonists, rich plantation owners, free blacks, and slaves, much fighting occurred over the course of the year in many events. And then, Commissioner Southenox, uh, who was yeah first sent to shut down the revolt, actually issued a formal decree to emancipate all the slaves in Saint Dominique and actually all the French Indies, which was a huge thing. And then so on the island, Commander Toussaint, who was uh, a rebel, fought off the British and Spanish invaders to keep French control of St. Dominique and keep uh, it free. But this peace didn't last very long, however, because Napoleon Bonaparte came to power in 1799 and took back the St. 
Dominique Island um, kind of restored uh, slavery to it with a lot of terror and death. Um, but actually five years later, uh, the colony was then taken back again by rebels um, after so many French uh, kind of died of continued resistance and disease. And uh, so then the country of Haiti was formed and they gained independence. And so uh, some Americans were kind of praising this, these slave revolts that were going on and saying that they were kind of yeah, just uh, uh, fighting for their liberty the same way that, that they did and that they're trying to overthrow tyranny everywhere. But most Americans disliked the idea of blacks claiming freedom by killing their uh, white masters um, for obvious reasons. And American slaveholders feared that this would inspire revolts in America and Jefferson uh, even feared this as well and uh, kind of warned uh, America that we need to do some things so this doesn't happen. But of course, the South didn't want to do anything that he suggested for slavery. And uh, in result, his, their fears came true in 1800. A slave revolt in Virginia um, occurred. It had you know, potential to succeed, but it was then failed miserably with 27 slaves killed. And so kind of what this section kind of did, like, like so what? Um, it was kind of just big and, and, and kind of how uh, inspiring, inspiring revolts and, and uh, slave revolts and kind of uh, continuing that division between uh, the two parties in America. The next section, election, uh, is kind of a short, short section that explains the heated battle, um, presidential election between John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and their respective parties in 1800. And so leading up to election, both parties were vocally and physically violent against the other with brawls and like horrible name calling. It was uh, pretty, pretty terrible. This division that was created because of this election and so uh, a Federalist had the Congress in 1798, and they passed the Sedition Act, uh, which meant that, um, that you could not speak out against the government or the president or, or else you could be uh, put in jail and fined. And so the Republicans saw this as um, you know, going against free speech and that many states nullified the law. And it's almost like ended up in a civil war. And in the election, Jefferson becomes president and the Republicans control both House and the Congress. And this election was big in kind of changing the law and creating the 12th Amendment, where each member of the Electoral College would cast one vote for the president and one vote for the vice president instead of two votes uh, without a distinction made between votes for president and vice president. So kind of what this, um, what this section does in general is that kind of the Taylor's quote at the end of 425 says, where the founders in 1787 had sought to pre preclude partisan divisions, the 12th Amendment assumed their lament lamentable in inevitability.
to kind of just states that, you know, they, they created even more division kind of through this, uh, through this 12th amendment where vice president and president will be tied kind of pretty much together and that one party will have complete control. And so it kind of just created even more division, um, between the parties. This next section, Empire of Liberty, uh, kind of talks about um, Jefferson's presidency and kind of what he was all able to do. And so he uh, kind of tried and, and succeeded pretty well in doing four major things. Uh, the first one is change much of the legislation that Adams and the Federalists put in place. So those were the Sedition Act, um, he also halted the Federalists' drive to build like a powerful national government. And he also reduced uh, the national debt in his eight years from uh, $83 million to $53 million. So that was a, a big deal. And then the second thing that he, uh, he did was put an end to the... He wanted to do was put an end to the Federalist Party. And so Jefferson even said himself that um, he vowed by the establishment of Republican principles to sink federalism into the abyss from which they, there shall be no resurrection for it. So this kind of division is seen and he just wants to just get rid of the Federalist Party in general. And just ruin it. And so uh, kind, of, kind of how he was able to do this was he was a man of high status and wealth, but was also able to kind of befriend uh, the common citizen very well. And so uh, a lot of people around the country began to like him and kind of support the Republican Party more. And uh, because of this, uh, in the re-election, he won by landslide and uh, the Republicans got both um, both houses. And so... Taylor says that never again would Federalists recover the presidency or a majority of either House of Congress. So he pretty much did destroy the uh, Federalist Party by that. The third thing was uh, to kind of maintain slavery. So a lot of Southern, most all the Southern states voted for Jefferson. And so to keep him happy, he didn't meddle with slavery at all, but even supported a trade ban with with Haiti. Because uh, Haiti was a bad influence and bad example on American slaves. And the fourth thing he, uh, big thing he did was westward expansion. So from, uh, from the Haiti independence, Napoleon cut his losses financially and was forced to sell Louisiana to the United States in 1803. So it was known as the Louisiana Purchase, uh, which doubled the size of the United States. So that was a big thing. And he was able to uh, mostly peacefully um, coerce Indians uh, to make massive sessions of land so that Americans could start moving west much more. So he was able to do this pretty well. He made 30 treaties, gaining 200,000 square miles of Indian land. So um, kind of so what for this section uh, was that Jefferson favored Republican ideas and kind of uh, the white man expansion and growth at the cost of Indians and blacks. 
He was in general very successful in doing things and growing the country in a great way financially and geographically, but not so much morally. But morals were also uh, very different back then than they are now. So this concluding section, Principles, kind of proclaims uh, Jefferson's presidency as the Revolution of 1800. Taylor even puts a quote in on page 431 that says, that it was as real a revolution in the principles of our government as that of 1776 was in its form. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of all about changing the principles set um, beforehand by the Federalists and the Adams uh, regime of a strong central government into more of a, a smaller federal government favoring the states and lower taxes is what Jefferson was able to do. And so the set, this section talks about the feud between uh, Thomas Jefferson and Chief Justice John Marshall, who was a Federalist. He also had a huge impact during his time. Uh, Taylor explains how these Federalist and Republican principles collided during these years and kind of continued to for many more. And with the same or similar principles colliding still even today. And I was just really astonished reading this chapter how many times America was on the verge of a civil war, how many times Taylor wrote that, and how many times people, men said that, you know. And it seemed that, you know, this immense division between these two uh, political sides nearly drove the country into many different times. Pretty crazy. And so Taylor kind of explains how many Americans today kind of romanticize the founders with unity and uh, being like resolute. And they also, um, and kind of say how people kind of rebuke today's political divisions. But he kind of says it is clear that the division of today has always been around and maybe was even more evident in the late 1700s and early 1800s. So Taylor says that the uh, kind of the, the diverse founders generated contradictions that continue to divide Americans today. So he just shows how, I mean, this, this uh, section partisans really, really, really describes the division in America during that time between the two parties. And a lot of people don't realize that that's how it was. And that's just kind of how it still is. So thank you very much for listening to our podcast. We're going to leave you guys off with a couple questions here at the end. Uh, the first one is, uh, in what ways did natives work with other world powers to try and push back American expansion? The second, in what ways does the political frustrations and concerns of this time period relate to the modern era? Thirdly, do you believe political divisions between parties are worse, not as bad, or about the same as they were during the late 1700s and early uh, 1800s? Uh, why and can we blame our founders for creating this division? And the final question I have here is, why do you think slave revolts were so much more rampant and successful in the Caribbean in places under French, Brit British, and Spanish rule than they were in America? Uh, so that's all we got. Thank you guys again for listening, and I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of your day.